Exciting news from Venice, supporter of the Vincast. The iPhone app has just been updated and they can now help you find the wines you love even easier based on the wines you are uploading onto the app and sharing with your networks. They can actually tailor special deals and help you uh, find wines that you've actually loved and uh, give you the, the specific kind of uh, products you are, you're after, the ones you enjoy. So um, all you need to do is make sure you are going on to www.getvinus.com forward slash vincast, download the iPhone app, Start snapping away, sharing those wines you enjoy and finding out other wines that you'd like to try based on what other people have said. And uh, they'll collect that data and they can help you source the wines that you should be drinking. Venus revolutionizes the way that we enjoy and share the wines we love. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and it is great to have you on board yet again. And um, I am going to be away overseas for a few weeks um, through my job, obviously. I'll be at uh, the Pro Wine and Vinitaly trade fairs and a couple of other things as well, so there might be a little bit of delay in episodes. I do apologize for that, but um, whilst I'm away, I'm going to be taking over my um, portable recording equipment, so hopefully I'll get the opportunity to chat with a few people or at least record some of my own experiences to share with you, um, but I do appreciate your patience whilst I'm away. For this episode, I invited a very respected um, wine merchant, both in the, in the retail sense and also the distribution sense, Randall Pollard, who um, initially was known for his fantastic uh, wine store in Geelong, uh, but also began to import some beautiful wines from uh, Europe to sell in the shop, but then he also started sharing them with other trade customers. So he talked about his his background, how he got into wine, and what he loves about working with these kinds of wines. So I hope you enjoy, and I will see you on the other side. Randall, thank you so much for uh, making some time to be on the the Vincast. Uh, and, uh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> and um, obviously, you are uh, pretty well known, particularly in Melbourne, um, in the in the wine game um, for a number of different reasons. Um, obviously, you have the, the retail story, and then you know the importing story as well. But um, I just wanted to sort of take you back. Can you remember what 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 it was? Was there a particular wine or a, a moment that kind of made you want to follow a career path in wine? Not particularly, I don't think, but I always have loved wine, even when I was 15. And uh, when mum and dad went out for a night and I, I was at home uh, with my sister, younger sister, I'd often uh, sneak up to the, uh, to, the <laughs> to the wine cask. And of course, you can't tell what volume's in the wine cask, so you can't tell if someone's stolen a glass of red wine. That so. was one of the good things about Chateau Cardboard. Yes, it was. And it was often the Wynn's wine cask, which you wouldn't remember, but it uh, had a, a fake leather covering really yeah <laughs> um uh anyway so i used to to break out a piece of cheese basic uh, cheddar style cheese and uh and have a glass of 
probably called something called claret out of a, out of a wine cask. So I, I and it wasn't sort of it was like you, you actually enjoyed. Yeah, that I enjoyed it. it. Wasn't, I loved it wasn't it. just a I'm going to be a sophisticated adult. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I loved it. I loved the flavour, um, even then. And that was basic wine, obviously. Mm. But then, um, I had a, a, a job in a bank when I was seventeen, and um, I. Uh, about a year and a half later, a mate said, I'm going to New Zealand. Would you like to come? And I said, yeah, I hate this job. So I I went across to New Zealand and I got a job, even though I was underaged, in, in pubs and um, and uh, no such thing as RSAs then. And I got a job in Do pubs. Do they even have RSAs in New Zealand these days? No, I'm not sure. Just <laughs> <laughs> joking. Um, and then finally I got a job in a tourist hotel corporation and I uh, moved around various hotels and, sure. and uh, started uh, tasting international wines, New Zealand, Australian plus French wines. Okay. And uh, I got a real interest for it then. I came back and I got a in, in Brisbane in about 81, 80, 80, I got a job in at a great restaurant called Milano's, mm-hmm. which people... Italian restaurant? Um, it was more an international, but yes, it was... They were Italians, right? Uh, Gino Merlo, um, whose brother started the coffee roasting business, which is very famous. Sure, um, they had an amazing wine list, and some um, people who have been around a bit longer um, still remember uh, the that place. It was table serve. I used to cook at the table. Um, you know, the crepes and all that sort of wow. thing. It's one of those places where I was wearing a um, you know tuxedo and. And carving uh, roasts and cooking uh, steak Diane uh, and and crepe suzettes at the table and serving the wine as well. God, it reminds me of yeah. um, some of those movies from the 80s, like, you know, yeah. or set in the 80s, like Wall Street and trading places yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, it was very ritzy. Um, still, I, I never believe that a, a, a waiter can cook something as well as a chef in the kitchen. Sure, sure. But, um, there was a lot of theatre, and so, it was a lot of fun. Are you originally from Queensland? Yeah, I'm from Brisbane. From Brisbane, originally, okay. Yeah. But then I got, I got such an interest there, tasting great wines, um, because uh, Len Evans used to turn up for the single bottle club there quite regularly, and we get to taste the leftovers. And an amazing list that went back to Bordeaux's from the 30s and Burgundy's from Far the 40s, right. and it was a fantastic list. It was about 60 pages long. Great old pen files, for example. And um, people used to regularly leave some behind, for us to taste, which is great. And, um, yeah, so then I went to Roseworthy and studied wine there for a couple of years. Studied winemaking? Wine production and marketing, it was called at that stage. Okay. It was the precursor for the um, for, for the wine marketing course that's there now. Yeah, which but, which well, I did the, the Masters yeah. of Wine Business, but yeah. pretty much, yeah, okay. Yeah, but it was it involved more production and, and viticulture than the marketing course. Did you have a concept of what you necessarily wanted to do in the wine industry or you just sort of no, had that, that love but you, that yeah. working in that environment gave you the opportunity to to be exposed to these pretty amazing wines it sounds like yes yeah. uh, i had no idea whatsoever what i wanted to do but back then in 82 83 wines were very cheap sure and um, even, even imported wines even as a student we could occasionally drink drc and first growth Bordeaux. it was just amazing yeah and whenever one of our classmates had a had a birthday. We always drink Bollinger RD 
you know, just whip, whip, whip into Adelaide and buy a bottle. I'm going to warn you now, you are probably going to alienate yourself a little bit with <laughs> all of the, uh, the sommeliers and, and wine uh, people of my generation. Well, but, I apologise. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so unfair. <laughs> it is, um, I know, but, uh, but people in 30 years' time are going to say the same about you, so... Probably, yeah, I, I, I don't doubt it. You know, the fact that I've, able, I've actually been able to drink certain champagnes and burgundies uh, in, in, in my very short career... Mm. Um, you know, in, like you say, in 30 years, they can possibly going to be so unattainable. Yeah, that's um, right. Apart, you know, f- partly because of um, price, but partly because of, um, you know, the, the scarcity of the yeah. wine. Demand. They never get cheaper. Great wines of the world never get cheaper, relatively sure. speaking. Oh, I guess to a certain extent that is the nature of inflation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, okay, so what, what was uh, your experience? You were living on campus at Roseworthy. Roseworthy's sort of in the Barossa, isn't it? Uh, it's near, near the Barossa. Right. Um, I lived uh, on campus for a short while and then got a house in Gawler, which, mm-hmm. is, which is also very close to the Barossa. Gateway to the north, isn't it? <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an okay little place. Um, <laughs> and I had a part-time job in... Um, uh, some restaurants we used to it was an exciting time for food actually we we used to go regularly and it was quite cheap to um i shouldn't admit that uh, to um uh, the pheasant farm okay maggie beers restaurant right there you it, go. Was, it was amazing sure sure really good value and there were some really good things happening like chong lu um yes in adelaide was uh, really starting out and it was very interesting for food mm. yeah so we uh, drank a lot, tasted a lot, and uh, and learned a lot. It was great fun. Did you have a? Did you find you had a, p- a particular affinity with certain styles or wines from a certain country early on? No, I, I was. You were just so you know thrilled to taste everything. Everything, yeah. Sure. I just wanted to learn as much as possible, and uh, and taste as many wines as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in those days, where was quality generally coming from? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, back in those days. Uh, you know, if you, if someone gave you a bottle of Black Label Wolf Blast, you you were beside yourself. Sure. Um, but then again, we you know, Eschazo was very affordable too. Uh, from from you know the more uh, the bigger production makers like Favoli mm. and uh, oh, everything Champagne. Um, yeah, Coonawarra was considered uh, de rigueur. Uh, Redmond's, you know. Yeah, of course. It's a very different. Um, a very different marketplace now with a lot more smaller producers. And, yeah. And, um, gosh, yeah. just in the 10 or 11 years that I've been working in wine, it's, it's changed significantly. It's, it's scary, isn't it? It's very, they're moving at a very fast pace. Yeah. Um, so, sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say when I left Roseworthy, I, I got a job with Crittenden's. Okay. And, um, I worked with them for a, a couple of years and that, um, then I moved into working for Coles, which is a very different experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in the buying office for uh, for Liquorland for Victoria. Right. And then not long after that, I started um, uh, working for family business, uh, Bannockburn Cellars in Geelong. Okay. So on the retail side of things, but they owned the vineyard as well. Now, I can imagine that um, at the time when you were working for the Coles Group um, and, and for Liquorland, it was probably a pretty different environment particularly considering obviously the, the larger guys are moving towards sort of their own branded stuff and, you know, and negotiating those kind of things and obviously um, importing their own stuff as well. Uh, how did you find it? What was the market like as far as 
distributors and producers and importers, that kind of thing? Oh, it's far more basic then. They, they didn't have many of their own brands back then, except mm. for spirits. Um, and, uh, you know, the stores were very small and they didn't have uh, really... Uh, this is even before Dan Murphy's sort of Yeah, Dan off. Murphy's had one store. That, Just the Alphington store? Yeah, uh, no, the no? Um, Paran store. Paran, so, okay. Yeah, the first one, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a very different ball game. Brands, big company brands were very important. Right. And small wine merchants were very important back yeah. then. Yeah, Not so much now, and especially in terms of uh, volume, uh, or the, you know, in numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was a, the brands of, uh, you know, Penfolds and Hardy's and Lindemann, Lindemann's or Orlando were very, very popular. Sure, sure. Um, and, and at that point, were there a lot of sort of distribution companies in Australia? We generally, as far as the, the locally produced wines, you were just going straight to the source? Um, no, most of them were, or well, a lot of them let me think back. I guess no, it was a bit. It was a bit of, was a bit of both. If, you, if you're working with the larger yeah. wineries, um, whether they're family-owned or if they're corporate at that point, yeah. you generally would have been dealing with them directly. I would think. Yes, we well back then we knew. Um, like I used to talk to Stephen Henschke, for example, and order wine from him, but he then put it through Tucker Seabrook or sure, whoever sure. the distributors were at the time. Yeah, but um, there weren't the small quality-focused, um, passionate importers like there, there are now. Mm-hmm. Like every, every man and his dog imports wine these days. And, uh, and, uh, it's going to be interesting now that uh, the Australian dollar's going down a little bit. Yes, yeah. Oh, well, it... it but that's, that's that, just the nature of fluctuation. That's right. It will always fluctuate, and, uh, and, and it can get a bit tougher. Mm. Um, but we've also had it very good in we terms have. of imported wine for, for quite a while now. And um, and perhaps you know Australian wines have suffered a little bit. Seems like that's changing a bit, though. Don't I get the feeling? I think there's a lot more excitement around Australian wine, yeah. even in, in the, the yeah. you know, overseas markets. And and you have, I guess, newer um, voices as far as wine communicators talking about, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a new movement in Australian mm. wine in, in terms, you know, a lot of yeah. exciting young. Wine producers, yeah, it's great. And people pushing boundaries, style. making making wines that are a little bit different, you know. Yeah, pushing the skin contact, pushing the uh, pushing the um, you know all, all different facets of production. Yeah, it's certainly you know there's a great opportunity to to, to try a myriad of different styles, and exactly. you know, obviously with different grape varieties being worked with as well. You know, and and mm. and some of them starting to get a bit of maturity as far as vine age. Yep. Um, and, and express their, their sight a little bit yeah. more interestingly, I guess. Yeah, it's very interesting. We're making a little wine at the moment, um, and Tessa Brown is making it for us up in Beechworth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we, we've we've had access to Fiano. and, and yeah. uh it's cool. Yeah, Pinot Grigio as well as um, uh, Gewurz Tremino. I guess, that, I guess that's why my generation is lucky. We, we have... Yeah. You know, that's a, right. A lot of a lot but, of exciting stuff. Yeah, but, and, and even imported as well. Mm. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh, imported wine. You know, and how much Jura wine would have been imported? You know, when you were working none earlier on. Absolutely um, none. And in fact, I joke with um, 
John Osbeston, he was the first to import it. Mm -hmm. But I was the first to sell any. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was just a timing thing. Um, You know, he's imported some amazingly great wines over the years. And he's a great fellow. But um, he, he tried bringing in Domaine Stefan Tissot. Sure. Uh, didn't didn't work for him. Yeah. It was only a small amount. But yes, uh, back, back uh, you know, when I was at Roseworthy, um, back in the dark ages, um, there was basically Bordeaux and Burgundy and not much in between. Mm. And even, um, you know, if you, if you spoke to Len Evans at, at that time about um, Barolo, he'd... Um, He'd turn away. Wow! <laughs> they didn't. Those guys didn't really like Italian wines back then, unless I was it was really great and really old. What about super Tuscan type stuff? Not even that. No, not so much. No, there was yeah. not, not the same interest in that as there was in in definitely Burgundy and Bordeaux. They like the French yeah. bees rather than yeah. the Italian bees. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so when you so when you moved, when you went to work for for Bannockburn. That was kind of when you made the shift down to that Geelong area? Uh, yes, it was a bit before then. Okay. Um, and, yeah, Geelong's a great spot. And I, I've only moved up to Melbourne in the last uh, three years. Right. I've been there all that time. And uh, But it is also good being in the thick of things up in Collingwood. Yeah, absolutely. Downtown Collingwood. What what yeah. were you um, doing at Bannockburn? At, it- at the, well, I was running the shop. Right, okay. In which is in, in Geelong. So like Bannockburn Cellars, not Bannockburn Vineyards. Oh it's same ownership though. Right, okay. Yeah. And that was a so that was a wine shop, it wasn't like a cellar door for Bannockburn. No. Oh, no, okay. it was a, no, it was a standalone wine shop, quite big actually. Right, okay. And um, you know, we we developed it and uh, it was quite large. Sure. Yeah. A lot of imported wines, a lot of uh, specialty wines. Sure. A lot of expensive wines. What sort of customers did wines. you have in, in Geelong in those times? Oh, lots, lots of wine-interested customers yeah, from all walks okay. of life and also people travelling through and also... On the um, way down to the Great Ocean Road. Yeah, and also orders by fax, and, uh, <laughs> which I don't own anymore. Gosh, I, can, I can barely even remember what the sound of a fax machine is. <laughs> yes, um, and telephone, of course. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, and then I started some my corporate orders. You know, yes, down, down, down the road at Ford. <laughs> well, yeah, not so much. <laughs> but then I started my own shop in 1999. Right. Okay. Which is still there. Um, and what was what was the idea? Was it sort of just to have your own thing and be able to hand select the wines yourself? Yes. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. It was just just uh, you know owned by me. Right. And uh, I didn't have to. Uh, to um, please anyone else, I just sure. had to please myself at the sure, time. Sure. Which, um, so that that was great, and yeah, then then we started importing bits of wine. Was it's, it initial? Was the importing initially for the purpose of just stocking in the shop? Exactly. Or that yeah. that was it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So how did you approach that? Obviously, you would have had some very good relationships with um, even then. You know, some of the these smaller importers and, and obviously the producers and, and distributors locally. Um, where, where did you see the, the opportunity as far as importing some of your own stuff? Was it just to have to be able to, to, to go and hand select it yourself? Absolutely. Well, um, it, we still had the problems back then, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s of, um, 
not being able to get enough of the stuff you wanted. Right. You know, the allocations were still pretty tight then. Mm-hmm. They're, they're even more dr- they're draconian now. I was speaking to someone the other day who's got a fantastic shop and he said, you know, he gets one bottle of DRC and then the importers, it's not their fault. They just get so little by the time they spread it out to all their customers, you know, mm. some customers get none, some, some customers get a bottle. Mm. And I thought there's got to be a better way. So I went and found some great Burgundy producers and started importing them because my passion was Burgundy. It still sure. is Burgundy. And amongst other things uh, now but um yeah so we i I soon realized though very quickly that i was going to lose the producers that i was importing if i didn't start to represent them to you know other wine shops and the best restaurants sure that's not fair to them and and uh you know in terms of uh, marketing more so than volume a lot Mm. of them don't care about volume they're just happy to be in australia um but well, a lot they of them do. wouldn't make that much anyway. No, a lot of them. They're all very small tight, producers, yeah. Uh, tight. Munera Giborg, we get 40 cases for Australia. Sure. And every year I ask if they've got more and they say, well, if someone else says no, then you can have a little bit more. Mm. And um, Which is unlikely. you know the way it works. You've got to wait for a disastrous vintage and and then take that opportunity to get some more and then you get a little bit more from, yeah, from then, then on. Yeah, and then the mm. following vintages. Yeah, that's right. So, um, as far as that that sort of starting point, um, h- how did you go about? Like, wh- what sort of research were you able to do in terms of finding? Um, I probably do it the same way other people do it. It's just you know, um, check out any source you can, books, websites, um, anecdotal, and um, magazines, mm-hmm. and you know there are millions of those, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, do a list of uh, great producers, cross off the ones that are already imported. Mm-hmm. Um, so you make a list of Burgundy producers, you put DRC at the top, maybe Loire, maybe Russo, um, and uh, you start crossing them off because you know they're imported, so there's no point in visiting for the purposes of of importing wine yourself. Certainly very good to visit for Just education. For pleasure, yeah. Yeah, and pleasure, absolutely. One of the best winery visits I've ever done is DRC mm. um, and um, I was with um, Jane Faulkner and Sally Gudgeon which which helped because you know journos um, I think get looked after a little bit better they're a little bit further up the food chain when it comes to, to visiting producers sometimes well unless you're the actual customer <laughs> yeah well I am the customer and, and you know I've met um, I've met my good friend Aubert a number of times mm-hmm. and um we had a great visit um, because he showed us the vineyards and, and walked us through all the vineyards. And, mm. and, of course, he's very passionate about that. And then he took us for a barrel tasting and then he took us to uh, tasting in the cellar of, of uh, blind DRC Eschezo, mm. which was fantastic, culminating in a, in a Latasse from the 30s. It was fantastic. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, that's an, – and, and having, having – um, decided upon a list of, of producers to visit, then you just go and visit them all and choose the ones you want to choose. Mm. I can imagine uh, even then, compared to now, it probably would have been not as easy to, to, to get as, as much information. I mean, for example, now a lot of producers have their own websites and then you've got, you can find websites for, for importers around the world and kind of look at what their portfolio yeah. is. And if you sort of see a lot of things you like and then you see something 
that maybe isn't imported into Australia, you kind of go, oh, okay, well, that, you know, that, that'd yes. be interesting, to sort of that, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, but back live- then, I, I can imagine it probably would have been a little bit more difficult. Oh, we live in an information age now, but this was only um, 14 or so years ago, so sure. it wasn't, wasn't really back in the Noah's Ark days. The typewriter days. Yes. Um, so there, but there wasn't as much information, you're right, and uh, there also, you know, the previous generation of uh, European producers didn't speak English as much as, anywhere near as much as the current. Mm. Um, so I can remember taking a translator my very first time. Yeah. With me, yeah, which, which is a strange, you would n- never dream of doing that now. Sure. Unless you were going to uh, uh, somewhere like um, Hungary, perhaps you might. But, yep. Um, yeah, so... Um, Do you find that, yeah. that, like, as far as the, the global wine market, that has changed a little bit and produces... Yes. Uh, at least, or maybe, like, the, the next generation, like, their children or something like that, yeah. or they have someone working in the cellars who can speak yes. English? Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's... it's they they realise it's important now. I guess, yeah, as, yeah. as wine consumption in Europe, particularly, you know, in France yeah. and, and Italy, has sort of started to go down, they've had to... Kind of reallocate and think. Okay, we'll have to think a little bit more globally. And it's very different, and they've got to start thinking about um, courting um, important wine writers. Sure, maybe courting's a, a, the wrong word, but certainly having a professional relationship, engaging with, in, engaging with, sending some samples. Sure, um, not just waiting for people to visit them, especially if you're starting. It's okay for Etienne Grivo. I don't think he needs to go out chasing. Uh, chasing anyone people come to him mm. but he still has to engage with them um, of and that's something that a lot of the old school burgundians have, have struggled with um and these days you know it's all very well having a great wine but if there's no international journalistic support for that wine then it makes it a lot harder to sell the wine mm. Uh, it's a perfect storm if you've got a great wine at a, at a very fair price and there's great reviews everywhere. And that's what we found when we started importing Keller. Um, you know, we we quickly realised that the reviews around the world basically summarised that he was prob- probably, possibly the greatest producer of dry wines in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so once we started to show it to people in Australia who hadn't heard of it before... Mm-hmm. They they go yeah this wine's great and they do a little bit of research and of course it's a you know Pandora's box it just opens up they see all these reviews from everyone mm. and they feel uh, they feel that they've made the right decision in liking the wine in buying the wine and uh, of course they feel more confident to recommend the wine so it just it's a snowball. Do you it's find that the, do you find that the nature of wine communication has changed? quite a lot, particularly in the last sort of four or five years where you've got sommeliers, for example, being, you know, being interviewed or being invited to write something and, and, and they're given the opportunity to express their opinions. And then you've got, you know, wine bloggers or, you know, mm-hmm. people writing, you know, and they're kind of given, given their opportunity to, 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 to have their voice heard that kind of access to information we're talking about as far as, you know, the internet, um, you know, it's changing and democratizing to a certain extent, yes. the nature of wine communication and, and that oh, accessibility to the information is there. Oh, it's, it's, it's changed so much. 
a, a person can give, you know, a wine night, an important Australian wine writer can give a wine 95 points. Although I did jokingly say this morning that 95 is the new bronze, um, you know, because there is a, a little bit of um, uh, high 90s scoring um, anesthesia mm. going on. I know that there's, but, there's a running gag, you know, on Twitter, for example, where people are saying, oh, I'm 98 points on that. Yeah. You know, that's very right. tongue in cheek. Yes. Yeah. Or 102. Yeah. Yeah. But um, nothing, nothing works more. And this is coming back to your point about um, democratization. I can't say it properly. But, you know, it's, if, if we've had it happen with some of our products before, um, if you get two people giving it a great review, in the same magazine, for example, that's like a perfect storm. It's fantastic. Mm. Whereas one person can do it and you get no result. Sure. So in, in one sense, it, it's weakening any individual, but it's it's strengthening in some ways the the the, the drive of, of the journalist or, or the, the or the commentator. Sure. Because um, if several of them talk about a wine, then people get interested. So it's it's changed quite a bit. So what were your experiences when you first started importing? Um, like, so uh, uh, it was a couple of years you were just importing for the shop yes. in Geelong, and then when you start when when you took the the next step of taking the wine you, you were importing to market, how did you find how did you find that initially? Well, I found it quite difficult. It's still difficult. Um, and when we first started doing it, sommeliers weren't, um, I guess, as influential as they are now. Um, you know, in in many, and they they possibly weren't as good as they are now too, or certainly weren't as well educated. Um, some weren't as opinionated, um, but that's the same. You get opinionated people or overconfident people in all walks of life, I suppose. Yeah, every element of the wine industry, for example. Back, you know, uh, 20 years ago, there were a lot of wine merchants who were very influential mm-hmm. and, the, and the influence has changed or the mm. power has changed. Mm. Uh, and, um, and there were a lot of wine merchants back then who were overconfident. I might have been one of them for a while. Uh, but... You know, you there. There are some great sommeliers around now, and some great restaurants who have fantastic wine programs and and are doing great things to get basic good wine, sure. interesting wine in front of <clears throat> people by the glass, and and also you know more at the high end doing great things too. So it's, it's wonderful. It is sad that there aren't as many wine merchants like Armadale Cellars. Rathdown sellers, uh, you know, doing doing the things they do. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice if there was more of those. There's some small ones popping up that have little wine bars. Yeah, that, that is sort of the, the new yeah. model, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes, and it's fantastic to see small ones like that um, doing like Seddon or Black Hearts in Smith Street with um, their... Black Market. Black Market, Popper. yes. And... Um, it's fantastic to see all that. It's really exciting. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Um, I would have thought that initially, you know, in terms of starting with particularly Burgundy, there would have been an opportunity where 
obviously Burgundy in general is very small volume and, mm. and you know, there's great, great producers getting tiny allocations. So there, there would have been opportunity with that. But when did you start to expand and look at other regions? Um, fairly quickly um, because I've also got a love of um, Shiraz. So Rhone was a, was a step mm-hmm. um, and dry Rieslings. I love great dry Rieslings from Germany. Mm-hmm. So um, that, w- that was fantastic as well. And, and Jura was probably before that too. Um, I just happened to be having a holiday in, in Brittany and uh, the oysters in Brittany are probably the best I've had anywhere in the world. I know everyone's got different stories, but the water's so I can so imagine cold. it can be so fresh as well when you yeah. eat them there. Oh, they're beautiful. We, we're staying at Pont Avon, which is... What near... doesn't go to Paris, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, they... Yeah, they just... That's why uh, there's so many oyster restaurants around uh, Montparnasse, because that's where the train stopped Right. in the old days. Yeah. It came in from uh, Normandy and Brittany. Mm. So all the seafood got unloaded there, and that's why there's all those walk-up oyster Oyster bars and just so on. Oh, yeah, yeah, so we went to a supermarket one day on this holiday and we bought a stack of oysters and we were staying just near the Bellon River, so there was lots of Bellons and all kinds of other oysters. And I happened to see a bottle of Tissot Jura. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, Van Jones. It was a 98 on the shelf. And we bought a couple of uh, live um, lobsters as well. Wow. So it's fantastic. So we put them in the freezer for a little sleep and then we cook them up and just serve them warm. And we'd had them a few times and this was towards the end of the week and I'd got quite good at peeling the uh, claw so that the uh, the meat, I didn't um, have to tear the meat. I, I just broke all the shell off and so the claw looked like a claw, but it was just meat. Mm. So I was very proud of myself. <laughs> anyway, this particular night, our other, uh, the, the three other people there didn't didn't like the Van Jean and I thought they were crazy and I was just in raptures over this wine. And... Then they decided they didn't want the oysters either. So I just had three dozen oysters to myself and a bottle of Van Jones. And I was in heaven. And I was well and truly hooked from that day. Um, and um, luckily... What does they say about oysters being a very potent aphrodisiac? Oh, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying a word. <laughs> um, wow. Like, and that's kind of like one of those really those experiences that you can have with wine and food that just stays with you you know i'm sure that a lot of people listening right, forever will have some of their own and, and and love sharing those kind of experiences oh i'm sure everyone and, would have those experiences if you love food and, and, and that's wine what, and travel and that's what gives yeah. you that emotional connection with mm. like with the wine and that's probably what kind of led you to think about sort of bringing some of that in yourself absolutely yeah for sure for certain yeah, so it's 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 great. That's and that's another thing that's changed uh, these days in the wine trade. You know, whether we're an importer, a retailer, or a sommelier, or a restaurateur, or a chef, mm-hmm. everyone's travelling. Sure, and sure, sure. It it's a great thing because everyone's got passion, everyone's got stories, everyone's finding things that that you know they go where they go. Wow, you know they. They have an epiphany and they go, I'm going to do that when I get back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I love it. It is. It's really exciting um, when you've got you know, sommeliers, for example, going overseas uh, you know, and 
going to the source as far as the mm. wines and then having the really strong connection, particularly with the food. And then coming back and sort of saying, oh, God, I wish I could get that wine. Oh, it's important. Mm. Awesome. And then just getting getting in contact with them. And you go, how did you find this? It's like, oh, I was actually, I was in that region. Or I, I had it in a, in a yes. bar in, in Paris or something like that. Mm. Um, and then you've got, as well, there sort of seems to be a, a, a starting just to be a generation of chefs who are kind of maybe going over and doing a six-month stage in a restaurant in London, you know, where they're introduced to something that they would have never seen. Um, yes. back here in Australia and then coming back and sort of thinking, God, I'd love to introduce that. And whether that's a sort of a, a particular style of cooking or, mm. you know, an ingredient that's not particularly used very often. Or combining whether, two things that... Exactly. That, and that kind of having, a, ingredients having, or styles. A, having a concept of like, this is the kind of venue I'd love to open. I don't know why we're not doing it already in, in yes. Melbourne. And, 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 you know, it's a, it's a, it is a really exciting, like, I guess that is kind of one of the benefits of... Mm. Um, you know, the combination of being able to travel a lot more easily now and, and then having the access to the information um, to, to sort of be able to find that kind of thing out and then introduce it to um, people who are mm. just sort of going, great, here's a new thing. Yeah. Obviously, trends change quite quickly. Yeah. That, yeah. And sometimes I feel sad about that, that restaurants have to reinvent themselves so yeah. quickly sometimes. Yeah. Um, because what you miss out on by doing that is the Francoise of the world. Yeah, um, of course. You know, which are fantastic. A flower drum. I mean, mm-hmm. went there recently. It was just Cafe wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was wonderful to revisit. You know, it's, it's wonderful to revisit those places yeah. every so often. It's great. It's like a great mm. film or a you know, great piece of music. It, it, it always has yeah. its charm, but it, it, it can still feel fresh yeah. every time you listen or mm. watch or, or look at a painting or something like yeah. that. You know, it's, it is so many, there are so many parts of it that, that, that culminate in that experience that, that you can love and have that connection yes. with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you also started to bring in a, some bits and pieces from Italy as well. Did you, how did, what led, led you to kind of Italy and, and, and having that connection? Uh, that was a simple commercial decision in a way, plus the fact that, you know, I, I love Barolo and, and other Italian wines. Have you, have you we, seen the interest in Italian wines increase quite a lot in the last few years? Yeah, I think there's a lot more respect for it, for Italian wine now than there was, say, 20 years ago. That's, that's without Probably doubt. A lot to do with quality improving and, and again, a yes. new generation of people wanting to, yeah, that's right. to and do education. things differently and, yeah. and move away from the cooperative systems. Yes. Um, but we, we realised as importers that we weren't selling much to Italian restaurants. There's a whole market uh, segment of restaurants that we're missing out on. Mm-hmm. So we went, we did our list of producers to visit. Just out of interest, I wanted to visit Paolo Scavino because he's always listed as one of the top producers. Mm. And um, I plugged in Paolo Scavino into the GPS and, yes, it, it took me there and... We rocked up and... Uh, and it was the right place? It was, it was Scavino on the letterbox. It was a winery. We pulled in. The guy came out, young guy, said, oh, you're a bit late. And I looked at my watch and we we're only five minutes late and I thought he's a bit cheeky. But anyway, For, he, he showed us around. It must have been irony. That, that Italians, yeah. that's, that's practically early. That's right, it would be. Yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't be ready normally. But anyway, he showed us around and uh, we sat down and he said, do you want a taste? Of course, yes. It's all very nice and going well, and he pulled out the label, and we've gone. Oh no, we're at the wrong place. <laughs> it was Azilia that we were at, which is um, Lu- Luigi and Lorenzo Scavino. 
But related so, or just yeah, related way? and next door. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and that that happened to be an amazing moment because um, we um, asked them if they had an importer, and uh, they said yes. And I went, oh, that's a shame. These wines are fantastic. Anyway, um, a bit further down the track, they said, you know, would you be interested in our wines? And, and I jumped at it. Mm-hmm. And um, just it's one of those great moments because we love the wines. They had a good name. Their name is getting better mm-hmm. every every year since we started importing it. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the name is better and they're going further up the scale. And... Um, Galoni made a great comment in his most recent um, write-ups on the 11 Barolos. He said that um, more than probably anyone else in Barolo, Azealia have made, they do make a wine that you can drink now, that's very easy to drink now, or albeit youthful, and one that does keep. So it sort of drinks all the way through its its evolution. Look, I've, um, I've, I've told a lot of people already, but generally my philosophy is that a wine should be able to be drunk on release. Yes. But a great wine, you should taste it and say, I enjoy this now, but I want to see what it's like. I, I, this deserves to be kept. Yes. I, I can't tell you how many times I would just get so annoyed visiting a winery or, or going to a tasting and, and having someone say, oh, but you can't drink it now. So mm. you're selling it to me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that, exactly. that's exciting to, to sort yeah. of see that, you know, mm. wines like that. Yes. So so we've started putting together a, a little Italian portfolio of small producers, uh, which is fantastic. And, you know, obviously the, the market's always changing and, and, you know, there's always, you know, a whole new generation of sommeliers and young people opening up, the, as you say, these these beautiful little wine shop, wine bar kind of things. Yes. You know, there's, there's fluctuations. So... Um, you know, there's, there's always opportunity, but, uh, I do appreciate you making a bit of time, um, in your busy Pleasure. schedule to, uh, to, to come on the podcast and, uh, people can visit your website and, and the social media thing to give me all the details, please. Yes. Um, well, um, in a retail sense, there's, um, there's the shop, which is randalls.net.au, mm-hmm. um, wholesale, it's heartandsoil.com.au. Um, we've got, um, a warehouse in Collingwood and um we're um yeah on Twitter it's um Randall's Imports mm-hmm. and um that's probably enough information someone can find us in this day and age <laughs> quite easily well, the information's yeah. there yeah uh but thank you very much and obviously I look forward to um to trying some more wines like this lovely uh Wagner Stempel from the Rheinhessen yes. new one for you yeah, classic dry dry Riesling, beautiful dry Riesling from a vineyard called Holberg, which is um, which has a granite subsoil, mm-hmm. and he's very proud of his uh, porphyry or porphyritic granite, and um, the wines are, as you can see, are really now, really that's a, that's a different porphyry to the old Lindemann's porphyry. Exactly, not many people <laughs> know that these days. No, I, I, um, I when I started working in Nickerland, you know, ten or eleven years ago, that we yeah. still had it. Uh, yes, well. Distant memory, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is delicious. And it's a gloss yeah. give X. I always love the yes. GGs. Yeah, very powerful. But cheers. Thank, thank you very you. much. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> 
As always, guys, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast. You can like my page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, but definitely come and visit me on my website, www.intrepidwino.com, where you can not only download and listen to all of the previous episodes of the podcast, but you can also read some of my experiences and tasting notes and whatnot. Uh, the best way to download and listen to the podcast is via iTunes or Stitcher or even Player FM by subscribing. Subscribing really does help me out a lot. And what helps me out even more is rating and reviewing the podcast. Uh, I really love hearing feedback. Uh, I want to get more people involved. As I've mentioned before, I'm planning something a little bit special for episode 50, which is not far away, and that will allow listeners to the podcast to actually dial in via Skype and have a chat with me and appear on the podcast themselves. So definitely send me an email, thevincast at gmail.com, and even if you just want to say hello, I'd love to hear from you. But until next time, bye. Bye.